On this episode of Ragcast Outdoors, we sit down with Danny Curtilla. Danny is one of my fishing mentors and really good fishing buddies. Danny is an incredible angler. He's traveled to three different continents, fished in four different countries to complete the unofficial Pike Slam. But a lot of people don't realize he's the very first one to ever complete the IGFA's first Bass Slam and Trout Slam. He's the very first ultimate angler in Wyoming. And at one time, he held 45 different line class world records through the IGFA and the Freshwater Fishing Hall of Fame. Danny's caught almost 800 muskies in his career, which is quite the feat. And on this episode of Radcast Outdoors, he sits down with us to talk about his pike slam, traveling the world, fishing for different kinds of fish, and also talking about golden trout, tiger muskies, and a whole lot more. So I hope that you'll sit back and relax and enjoy this episode of Radcast Outdoors. This episode of Radcast Outdoors is brought to you by PK Lures, Bow Spider, and High Mountain Seasonings. Fish on! Hey, Radcast is on! Hunting, fishing, and everything in between. This is Radcast Outdoors. Here are David Merrill and Patrick Edwards. Hello and welcome to another episode of Ragcast Outdoors. I'm Patrick Edwards. I'm David Merrill and I'm glad you're back for another week. We're here again. And I've been looking forward to this one because I know this guest very, very well. Um, he's taught me almost all that I know about fishing. Between him and my dad, they get all the credit. But We've almost had to arm wrestle to get him to come on. But almost, almost. But uh, Danny Curlow, welcome to the show. It's good to have you. Thank you for having me. Good afternoon, everyone. Yeah, so we're going to get into a little bit of stories about pike and muskies because that's what Danny really loves. But first, I want to talk about one of our sponsors. So I want to say a huge shout out to Bo Spider and David for sponsoring this podcast. Um, he's got a lot of really cool stuff coming onto his website. So if you are a Bo Spider customer, he does have some how-to videos to use this product more effectively, which are really great. If you're a bow hunter of any kind... You got to have a bow spider bow packing system to pack around your compound because there's really no other way to do it as efficiently and with as many great ways of doing it as the bow spider provides. So, so that javelina hunt that we filmed that'll be on the YouTube channel with those how to videos, you know, down there hunting in that pucker thick nasty brush and it Ugh. dude it was pokey. really nice to not have to hold my bow and push those pokey branches out of the way mm. but be able to retrieve it when i need it so yeah those guys can bowspider.com's the website go check it out that's enough about bow yeah. spider so let's jump into it so uh just a little bit of history here i've been fishing with danny since i was a little kid and uh Danny, like i said he's taught me a lot of what i know and he's just a very knowledgeable fisherman and has fished literally all over the place, which we're going to get into. But Danny, kind of where I wanted to start just so people can get to know you is, you know, how did you get into fishing and where are you from? I was born in southwestern Wyoming. And when I was growing up, my grandparents had a lake house on or Crooked Lake in, in, the, in the Brainerd area of Minnesota, the north central Wyoming, or Minnesota. And as a little kid, we used to get brought up there by our folks to fish for bluegills off their dock and I guess the first time I ever fished up there I caught up my first bluegill and I was so excited I was probably like four years old or so that I 
started jumping up and down and jumped off the end of the dock into the water. So, <laughs> <laughs> that was a pretty good sign that I was pretty bad hooked on fishing right then. Mm -hmm. So, you know, growing up, who, who really got you into fishing? Mainly my dad and my grandfather. They, they were both like to fish for Northern Pike was their thing, but they'd let us fish for bluegills and stuff on the dock all the time. And my grandparents like fed the bluegills with like corn or cornmeal and and uh quaker oats and all sorts of stuff to keep them around and then when we'd get up there we'd fish for the worm we didn't even have poles we just had like a willow stick with a line tied on and a, a hook and a night crawler and maybe a or a piece of worm and a bobber and that's how we'd catch and we'd catch quite a few nothing really big enough to keep but we our folks let us keep some you know so we could contribute to the meal or whatever but <laughs> My dad and grandpa would always go out on the boat and fish for northern pike. And as we got a little older, they started taking us out there with them, me and my brother right below me. And they wouldn't let us fish for northerns. We had to sit and watch or else fish, you know, bobbers right off the side of the boat. They'd be casting these big spoons and roplas and catching these northern pike. And if you have ever caught a northern pike, you know they're pretty good fighters and it's pretty exciting. And I remember one time, we were fishing with them, and they caught four or five, you know, up to six, seven pounds maybe, which back then that was a huge fish when I was a little kid. And <laughs> a couple of them got, so they get really violent when they get next to the boat and when you net them and stuff. And one of them, they had to cut the net apart to get the pike out of there. And so the next day, or next, when I returned back to Minneapolis, because I was living in Minneapolis at that time, I wrote, wrote a story about, Fishing, their, their fishing trip and how impressed I was, you know, that they had to cut the fish out of the net and all this other stuff. So uh, at an early age, I got to be a big pike fanatic. But I never, they never would let us fish for them because we were too little and they were afraid we'd get hurt because <laughs> if you haven't caught a northern pike, their whole head's full of these huge teeth that are razor sharp and their gill covers are razor sharp and their gill rakers. So anything from the head forward is a dangerous part to grab <laughs> on the one of them and then about the time i was starting getting close to old enough to go we moved to arizona well there's not a whole lot of pike fishing in arizona so did that really spark your interest in pike was you know oh yeah watching how exciting their <laughs> fights were and stuff oh yeah i was i was hooked on them big time that was like my dream fish to someday catch was a northern pike and we made a few trips out after we moved to, first we moved to arizona and then we moved up to riverton and we went back a couple times, and one time we went out with my great uncle. He had a lake place on another lake called um, Buchanan Lake, and we were fishing smelt, big old long smelt. And my brother kept catching these little bullheads that were barely bigger than the smelt. <laughs> and then he finally caught a, a pretty good northern. And then I finally got one on. It got underneath the boat and broke my line, and I was just heartbroken. And then my great uncle he caught an 18 pound northern when we were with him and man that was the biggest fish i'd ever seen in my life and that got me even more excited well when we got done back then we nobody believed in releasing anything and so he was cleaning fish in the garage and i walked over to the garage to see what was going on just as i did he was tossing that northern pike fish guts out and it hit me right in the face with all the guts <laughs> So that's always a lovely that was experience. that was a real cool experience but after that i really had to catch a pike but when i when i was like junior high and stuff i mostly just fished trout and walleyes and bass around here because the closest pike fishing in wyoming is up at keyhole and that was way too far to go when i was that age but 
when I got older and was living by myself and working for Pepsi, I started making trips to Minnesota every fall to, I finally got a, like about an 18 inch Northern, which is just a peewee one, but I was so proud of that stupid fish. <laughs> it was embarrassing. And then my dad had caught the biggest one he'd ever caught when he lived in Minnesota was 18 pounds. And so that was my target. I had to catch one bigger than my dad's and I kept going and never was getting anything real huge and thought about going, you know, to Canada and fish farm, but I never did get around to it. And then I started reading about muskies. Oh, a muskie's a member of the pike family too, but it gets a lot bigger than northern. I thought, man, that's what I got to be fishing for. And made the mistake the first time I ever went fishing for them was in a lake in downtown Minneapolis called Lake Harriet. I'd read that it had muskies in it, and so I went out there with my great big spinning rod. I bought this real long, supposedly European predator rod or something, and was throwing this bucktail, which is just a big spinner with a big wad of hair tied on the back of it. That's supposed to be like one of the top musky lures. And I, was, I didn't have a board or anything, but I was fishing off the dock with my cousin, and I had this started reeling in there was this fish behind my lure and i thought it was just a carp so i stopped reeling and was looking at it and then i finally figured out it was a muskie well that's the worst thing you can do if a muskie falls is to stop reeling because they'll lose interest and swim away you're supposed to do like figure eight or whatever when you get a muskie in after that i mean it was only like probably a three footer but that looked like a huge fish back then and that that pretty much got me started on them dang muskies and so then i started going on my all my vacations to Canada and Minnesota musky fishing and it was it was like a couple of years before I caught my first musky and then it was only like 32 inches but it might as well have been a hundred pounder as happy as I was the guy that I was fishing with he said I wouldn't quit saying I can't believe I got one to finally open his mouth and eat and I just kept saying that I guess over and over again and I was really proud of that fish but I've caught a lot bigger ones since then but yeah I was gonna say how many do you have now because I mean that it's been a long time ago because you've caught a lot since then. Yeah, probably close to 800 if you count tigers and purebred muskies. So. Yeah, so you, you, you keep having that itch to go after them. Obviously. Oh, yeah, that's my favorite <laughs> fish. I spend most of my summer driving to Utah or Nebraska or somewhere to go musky fishing or tiger musky fishing. or right. Even can do a little bit of that now in Fremont County with Badwater Pond and Bass Lake and Middle Depression Reservoir all have tiger muskies in them. So, and I actually caught a tiger out of Bass Lake a couple of years ago. So I have hopes that that's going to turn into a pretty good tiger muskie fishery eventually. Well, I've told Patrick several times that you know I only need to get one more elk harvested and then I can uh, feel complete as an elk hunter. And it just turns out that I shoot one and it, it, I need Never to shoot enough. just, just, just one more. <laughs> right. I, I kind of pick it that. That's how, uh, how musky fishing is. I just got to yeah, catch one more. Yeah, right? mm-hmm. And then you got to hit the magical numbers like 30 pounds or 50 inches or whatever, or 55 inches. If you get really good at it, I guess I haven't got really good at it cause I haven't caught a 55. <laughs> yeah. But or. you've cracked 50 on oh, yeah. both muskies and tiger muskies. Yeah, so I've caught, you're, you're doing all right. I've caught seven altogether five purebreds and two tigers that were 50 or bigger yeah and just for the listeners who aren't familiar with musky fishing it's a feat in itself to catch a musky but to catch 800 around that ballpark of muskies or tiger muskies that's something special and you have to spend a lot of time i mean it's not something you just wake up one morning and no you, you go do it you get skunked a lot fishing yeah. for muskies and tigers but 
Once in a while, you'll have good days. It's your fault, by the way, that I'm hooked on tiger muskie fishing. Same thing. I mean, I've told this story on the podcast before, but I had a tiger muskie follow me in, and that got my heart rate up big time. And then had one strike, and I pulled the lure out of his mouth, which was really depressing. But, yeah, now that I've caught him, I mean, they're one of the more addicting fish to catch for sure. So what really, you know, you talked a little bit about what got you hooked on pike and muskie, but what was it that kind of got you the drive to go after, you know, all the different species of what we would call a pike slam or an unofficial pike slam? Well, after I moved to Tennessee, I they have chain pickerel and grass pickerel down there, and I started fishing for them trying to catch them and I caught my chain prickle fairly fast but I wasn't catching any grass pickle and so I pretty much spent like early summers fishing for chain pickle over at Kentucky Lake and then later on I'd go up to Kentucky and Tennessee and muskie fish but when the water levels were or when it was fairly cold out I mostly specialized in pickerel fishing and one day I was fishing one of my favorite chain pickerel spots and I had this hit on a spinner and this fish jumped out of the water and it didn't look like it was the right color. And so I kind of got a weird, you know, felt like that was kind of strange. And when I got it in, I could see it wasn't a chain picker. It was actually a grass pickle. And it was a big one. It was like 14 inches. Well, the world record grass pickle is only a pound even. And it's probably like 17, 18 inches long. So I was, that was a really big grass pickle. And Tennessee didn't have a state record grass pickle at that time. And so I was, I was way out in the lake waiting. I was going to try and bring it in and put it in a cooler and take it and get it certified as a state record and then turn it loose. Well, when I got about halfway in, it flipped out of my hands and went back in the water and that. So I never got my state record grass pickle. Oh, man. And unfortunately, that's the only one I ever caught. But I did catch a, a grass pickerel, chain pickerel hybrid one time, which is kind of an unusual deal. But all the pike family can interbreed with each other, the f- fertile ones anyway. So what are all the different species in that pike family? There are seven species and one subspecies. The smallest ones are grass pickerel, which is a subspecies of the redfin pickerel. And a grass pickerel only gets up to a pound in the records from like Indiana. And grass pickerel aren't available in too many places, but there's a lake in Nebraska or several lakes in Nebraska that have grass pickerel. And they've caught some pretty good sized ones, but it's way on like the eastern side of Nebraska. And then redfin pickerel are pretty much confined to the the Atlantic coast states, like New York and New Jersey, and and like the southern states like Florida and Georgia and North and South South Carolina and Virginia and places like that. Well, after I caught that grass pickerel, I, I realized that the only subspecies I hadn't caught that was available in the U.S. was a redfin pickerel. And so I made a specific trip to Florida because I contacted some fisheries people in Florida and they recommended a place where I might have a chance of catching a grass pickerel. Well, I went out there about spring break time and I didn't realize it, but that's about prime mosquito time in Florida when you're (laughs) walking around in the swamp. Plus you got to watch out for alligators and all sorts of good stuff. But I finally caught a little tiny redfin out of this one creek called Deep Creek. And it was a monster. It was like six or seven inches long. And I <laughs> caught it on a like a 32nd ounce jig with a little plastic minnow on it. And so I finally had all my, my North American species. And at one time, it was believed there was three subspecies of muskies. So I made sure I had all of them. One, the Ohio River, the Great Lakes, and the 
northern and the northern are the barred fish and the great lake strain are the spotted fish and then the ohio river are the more silver ones silver, yeah. the clear ones but there's variations and i mean you get spotted and barred ones sometimes out of the ohio river strain and and so I made sure I caught all them, and then I added a tiger muskie because they're a hybrid that's widely available across the U.S., and they stock them extensively out west, like in Utah and Wyoming, and New Mexico, Colorado, Utah, Idaho, and, and Montana, and then Washington, Washington State has, yeah. has a bunch too, but I haven't made it up to Washington yet to fish for them. And so I had all them, and when I was in school, I, I got a degree in fishery biology back in the mid-90s at the University of Wyoming, and I'd read about this pike that's only available in Asia, Far East Asia. It's only available in Russia, Mongolia, and China. And so that was like my dream fish to catch, you know, besides my muskies and stuff. Mm -hmm. So I like to rib Patrick a little bit that, you know, I do a lot more hunting, and he's the fishing guru, right? But when I went to Africa, I took a day and went fishing on the Zambezi River. Oh, for tiger fish? And I lost the one fish we hooked that day, and it's still, you know, I kind of, it stings. I I know you you were talking earlier about that that one that the pickerel you'd lost that might be a state record i'm sure my tiger fish was i mean he jumped out of the water twice and we were using steel leader right but he got off and i i don't really need to go back to africa to hunt i've checked that box but, but that like dang to fish that i gotta go catch that tiger fish yeah. out of the zambezi the thing that scared me though when we we're we we're, we, we had a guide and we were on a pontoon boat and we went by a nile in you know, crocodile, crocodile. It was as long as that pontoon boat, oh, and yeah. I'm not kidding, guys. It was up on the bank, just sunning itself, yeah. and the guide kind of tapped everybody on the shoulder and looked, because, I mean, they're still a little spooky, and I looked over, and my jaw just, I mean, we're talking 15, 16 foot. Yeah, you don't want to wade out there, I don't think. But, but anyway, I understand that, and then tigerfish are supposed to be, like, awesome fighters and stuff. I've always wanted to catch one, but I don't know if I'll ever make it to Africa to get one. So anyway, I'd read about this pike in eastern russia and and mongolia and stuff and that was like my dream trip to go but working and stuff i didn't have time to take off you know for a couple weeks to go over there and couldn't really afford it and so i kind of put it on the back burner didn't really think much about it well then i was diagnosed with cancer about five and a half years ago and i thought man if i'm going to get any of this stuff done i better do it before because I didn't know how long I was going to have because they made it sound like I only had like a few months to live when I first got diagnosed. And so once I got where my cancer was somewhat under control, I decided to take the plunge and go to Russia. Well, I wanted to go to Mongolia, but I couldn't afford Mongolia. But I found a guy in Russia that was willing to take me out for a fairly reasonable price. And so I made the trip out there. And boy, it's an eye-opener when you go to another country from the U.S., mm-hmm. especially Russia. <laughs> Yeah. Well, before we get into that too much, I got to talk about one of our other sponsors before we get into That's the fine. Russia experience. But uh, so PK Lures, Danny actually uh, can attest to this one because he's used the flutterfish before to catch tiger muskies. But uh, PK Lures are amazing lures. You can use them for a lot of different applications. There's spoons that you can use. So they have the PK flutterfish and PK spoon, which are good for either casting or vertically jigging danny i think you used them to catch tiger muskies casting them and kind of ripping them along 
Um, and then they have a whole line of crankbaits for open water trolling, for walleyes, for trout, for basically anything that's going to bite. And then they have some really awesome crawler harnesses, the PK Wobbler, PK Dakota Disc, and a few of the others. You definitely got to get out there and try those. Um, so go to PKLure.com. You can find those incredible lures there. Um, we are having a big giveaway in the month of April that you can sign up for for a huge prize pack that includes some PK lures. So definitely check that out on our website. But again, thank you to PK lures for sponsoring. So Danny, to get back to this, so you get to Russia and for those of you who are out there, you don't realize how sick Danny was. He doesn't really talk about it, but I mean, this he's, guy kind of downplaying it. A little yeah. Bit. This guy fishes seriously more than anybody I've ever met. Like, a ton of days a year, probably at least a third of the year. He's finding a way to make it somewhere to go fishing. But you know, this, this cancer really took him out. And I mean, he, he was on the edge there for quite a while. And so we were all just kind of wondering what was going to happen. And, and he got, and here a he lot signs better. up and goes to Russia. Well, he got a lot better and it was, it was really cool to see that. And then he says, Hey, I'm going to go to Russia. So tell us, you know, what, what's it like going to another country especially Russia, that's so much different than here? Well, for one thing, there's a military presence everywhere you go. I mean, you can be out in the boonies, and there'll be soldiers, like, alongside the road, like, all the bus stops and stuff, because they have a lot of bus stops out in the rural area. Unlike Wyoming, they have pretty good bus service, apparently, out there. And people in Russia are really, really pushy. Like, when I (laughs) went to get off the plane, I was sort of towards the back of the plane, and I... I was starting to get up and people were just pushing me out of the way to get to the front of the plane. So I finally just waited until they all got in front of me. And then you get up there and then you have to go through customs and their customs agents, I don't think, know how to smile. I mean, I think it'd break their face if they smile. <laughs> I had my, my passport. And to go to Russia, you have to get a letter of invitation from somebody over there. And so I had my letter of invitation and my passport and I hand it to him and this woman just glares at me and looks down and I stand there and then she glares at me some more and then looks down again and finally she let me in and it was like whew, I didn't think I was going to get through and I didn't have any reason to worry I wasn't like trying to sneak anything in or out and got picked up by my this guide friend that I well he wasn't a friend at the time but became friends with and they drive on the same side of the road as we do but all their vehicles are the wheels on the right-hand side like English cars. And I didn't know that, and we went to get in his truck, so I walked over to the other side, and he goes, what, are you driving? And I said, no. And I looked, and the steering wheel was on that side, so that was different. <laughs> and then they drive like maniacs out there, and, <laughs> and their roads are terrible because we had to drive, a, I don't know, around 100 miles to get down to the part of the Amur River Basin that we were fishing. And so that was you know, are we going to make it alive kind of thing. And then when they, they were doing a bunch of construction, and instead of doing anything to fill it, they just leave it however it is when they get done. So, I mean, you have to really pick your way carefully. And and like I said, the people there just drive like maniacs, and the streets are real narrow and stuff. I, it's amazing they don't have wrecks all the time over there. And then there's like all these bus stops out in the middle of nowhere, and you look and there'll be like a soldier or two almost at every bus stop that you see. So the military still keeps a pretty good clamp on the people over there. And as far as like shopping and stuff, their stores seem to have, you know, 
decent amount of stuff because I guess you know, when the communists ran, you know, you had to wait in line to get a loaf of bread and stuff. And it doesn't seem to be that way anymore. And most of their architecture in their cities are these old, like, military barrack-style apartments where they're just cement walls and stuff, really crude. The only real fancy places are either government buildings or big churches, and that's everything else is pretty mundane and bleak-looking. And then everybody over there is driving either, like, Japanese or Chinese or um, Korean vehicles or else they have these old ancient Soviet Soviet military trucks and stuff. And so it's weird. You don't hardly ever see any, you know, like, mid-size or bigger cars or full-size trucks. It's all these, like, little Japanese and Korean trucks and stuff like that. It, It was weird. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about the, you know, the excursion and going on the trip. Because I remember when you came back, there there was a lot of interesting stories. One about the flies that tried to carry. Oh you yeah, off, and they have different fishing styles and all kinds of stuff. So tell us about that. Well, when I went out there, it was in the summer, which was a mistake. I should have gone like in the fall or the spring, and I didn't realize that they had such a problem with. They got like giant horse flies and. And then real tiny, like, black flies, but they're kind of yellowish colored. They just eat the heck out of you. And they hit you, like, in the middle of the the day. And then in the early morning and the evening, it's mosquitoes, you know, just eat you alive. So it got where I was having to, like, tape my gloves up around my arms or the sleeves of my shirt and stuff and tape your ankles to keep from getting just ate alive by them, especially them flies. And... It is pretty rough out there, and you don't see hardly any game. I think they're so poor out there that they pretty much kill everything they can, you know. And then the area we were in actually has Amur tigers, but they're, like, super rare. There's only, like, 400 of them in, in existence anymore. But there was a chance, you know, you might run into a tiger, which that would have been weird, <laughs> scarier than heck, too. <laughs> yeah. We can't actually camped on an island. Well, we camped on two different islands. We camped on an island up in this tributary of the Amur called the Gura River. What was your camp like? Oh, we just had a big tent and two um, floating rafts with gas or with gas engine. And it was pretty portable. It wasn't. We just set up when we got there. It wasn't like something he had set up. And he said the reason we were camping on an island was because, like a lot of the woods around there, had some kind of tick that give you a real bad disease, and they didn't want me to get bit by one of them, and I didn't want to get bit by one of them. And so we pretty much either fished or, you know, stayed on the islands or else fished out of the boat. We didn't really walk around the shores or anything. I did around the shore of the island because they said the high water, you know, blows all the ticks and stuff off of the islands and stuff, so you're pretty safe on there. And then after I caught my Amur pike, oh, and everybody was laughing at me because they all fished like spoons and and spinners for the pike, and I brought a lot of topwaters, small topwaters like I use for muskies and pike out here. And they couldn't believe how much better luck I was having with them topwaters than they were having with their spoons. And, and, well, the one guy was pretty much a fly fisherman, but he was trying to see if he could make a fly that have a similar action to my topwater. And then the, the other guy was was really interested in, in those lures because it was something, something I guess they don't have over there. And so when I got back, I sent them some of them whopper plopper topwaters because I'd done pretty good. I I only caught like five on where pike and lost a couple others, and then we went over to the main oh and i caught a amur catfish which is or two amur catfish which are 
relatives of those huge whales catfish that they catch in europe mm -hmm. they don't get near as big but they they look exactly like a whale just a small one so like a huge head and kind of skinny tail yeah almost like a snake or something mm -hmm. with a great big huge head and they seem to like top waters pretty good and then i caught this fish called a flathead asp which is a a predatory species of minnow that aren't real common to catch and they seem to like top waters pretty good too so i caught some weird fish and then we went over to the main amur to catch some mostly what they catch are either amur pike or when the season's right they get a lot of those they get tymon and lenoch which are salmon is related to you know trout and salmon but the time of year i was there you would have had to go way way further upstream than they wanted to go to run into them because the water warms up too much in the summertime because we were there like in july it's like 90 degrees almost every day we were there or more with real high humidity it wasn't really fun so what what did you eat <laughs> did you eat those fish that oh, you caught you or? tell us about the uh, we, <laughs> fish stew. he brought some reindeer meat and we had like reindeer stew and stuff and then they have he bought cheese and a few things and then one of the amours i caught the smallest one i caught was hooked in the gill and so it wasn't going to live and so he filleted that out and i got to try that well then when we made went on to the main amour river we camped on this island that was about a half mile across the lake or whatever or across the river and i caught one of them amour catfish and he told me to keep it and so he he went over to the river and dumped or scooped out some of that amour river water which is nasty looking that other river was real clear it was like a trout stream but the amur river looked really <laughs> bad and and then he started cutting that catfish up in chunks and threw it into that deal and made a stew out of that catfish well i wasn't too keen on the fact that he was using that amur river water even though he was boiling it. i mean it had all this algae and stuff in it it was just nasty looking and we had these big big containers of spring water that we'd gotten filled and I wish he had used that instead. And then he brought the catfish over, and he gave me the first bowl, and it was the one with the head. <laughs> that, that was probably a sign of respect. Right? I guess I don't know. Or he was testing anyway, you. <laughs> anyway, I I tried it, and it was it wasn't terrible, but I really wasn't that that enthused with it. And so he got to talking with this other guy that came over. One of his friends came over in a boat to visit us on the island. They were all BSing and stuff, and I accidentally flinged my catfish into the river and they weren't watching <laughs> wasn't the most appetizing no it, ever had. it wasn't terrible but i just don't like catfish that well and then the fact that it was in that nasty looking river water just made it really hard to get too excited about it. no no mcdonald's to go by no, and grab a no, cheeseburger huh? no we did get he had a friend in one of the, there's all sorts of little villages along the river and he had a friend in one of the villages that ran ran out some water to us and then he also ran a couple of cokes to us because i was getting i needed a caffeine fix pretty bad and so i <laughs> i talked him into bringing out some coke and then also he brought out like some fresh strawberry preserves that were really good and stuff like that so he kind of saved us a little bit i think <laughs> i probably lost some weight while i was out there though because so how many days were you gone total i was in russia for i think six days and then it's like a a whole day to fly back did you catch another fish too there was another species well like i caught a, two in the main river uh, a sky gazer which looks like a tarpon oh yeah that's and then i caught a mongolian redfin they're just two different minnow species that 
they're okay. But there's this one species of minnow that we were trying to catch called a, and I can't think of the name of it right now, but it looks a lot like a barracuda, but it's actually a minnow. It doesn't have any teeth at all, but it gets up to like 60, 70 pounds. And that's a minnow over there, minnow yeah. species. That's yeah, crazy. There's a lot of pretty good-sized minnow species over there because they got yeah. all sorts of different kinds of carp and stuff, too. Which one fought the best out of all of them? Uh, probably my Amur pike because they're, they're about the biggest fish that I caught. The so, catfish probably would have been stronger if I'd have caught some bigger ones, but right. I didn't catch any bigger ones. So for the listeners out there, what, what does a pike slam include? Well, there isn't really an official one. I'm trying to get the IGFA to start one. But I, what I consider a pike slam are all seven of the species, plus the one subspecies of pickerel. And then I caught the two different, I guess they're strains, or three different strains of muskies now that they aren't considered subspecies, plus a tiger muskie because they're pretty available. Right. And then the Amur pike, and then like a couple of years after I went there, they decide there's two new species of pike in the world, uh, aquatane pike that's only been listed as a species for like five or six years and southern pike which has been a species for about 10 years well i hadn't i wasn't aware of that at the time and then i don't know i got back from russia and i was having some real bad problems with my neck and got a hold of a a neurologist from casper and he did some tests and he said oh your vertebrae are collapsing he said you might be in a wheelchair by the end of the year and i thought well, that's not good. And so I'd heard about those other two species, and I thought, man, if I'm going to try and catch them, I better go and get them while I can still move. So I made the trip over to Europe, and to get the southern pike, you have to fish in Italy, and to get the Aquitaine pike, you have to fish in France. And so I did both of them on one trip. I got a hold of an Italian guy that was on the this musky site that I go on. I was asking for information about southern pike and aquitaine pike and he said well if i came out he'd take me fishing for the southern pike and then we could also fish for the northern pike that they have in europe are a lot like way girthier and heavier than the ones we have in the u.s they almost look like a different fish they're so so much fatter they're built more like a musky than a northern pike and so we went to this little lake because the italian pike or the southern pike as they call them they don't i don't think they get quite as big as a northern pike and then their colors are they're almost like a tiger muskie but with horizontal stripes and spots instead of vertical ones like a tiger muskie and they're, they're real cool looking fish and we fish this little lake called lake Ogino, which is south of or west of um, milan we went i flew into milan and we drove over there's like these italian great lakes there's like magori uh, um, and i don't uh I can't think of all the names, but there's a bunch of these real huge lakes. And then there's the smaller lakes, and the smaller lakes are generally what have the southern pike in. And so we started, he likes to troll, and so we trolled for like hours and hours on that lake and didn't have any action. And then the weather was starting to get nasty, and I said, he said, well, we'll try casting for a while. And then we went over, and there were some places where there's like reeds in the water. Did we, you take your whopper ploppers again? Mm-hmm. But I didn't catch anything on them. But I was using a a red fin lure that I catch a lot of tiger muskies and muskies on that past have been with me when I've <laughs> had success on them and yep. started throwing that and about a half hour after I started throwing it I caught a small southern pike it was like 24 inches long but I was more than pleased that I caught one at least and then we kept casting I had a couple others follow me in but I didn't get them hit and then the weather got bad enough that we had to get off the lake because it was just starting to pour 
And so I caught my southern pike, but only caught one. And then the next two days, he wanted to go fish Lake Magori because there's huge northern pike in there. Like his biggest ones, I think 51 inches that he caught out of there, which for a northern pike is huge. huge. He said that he hoped that I could catch at least a pike over a meter long. And and then that southern pike, and he'd consider it a real successful trip. And the first day I caught two northerns. One was 35 inches and the other was like 36, which they were decent fish. And the one of them I caught had a, a blue mouth and his fins were kind of blue and they call them emerald pike for some reason. It's some kind of a mutation or something. And I guess they aren't super common, but I, I'd never heard them before, so I don't really consider them a, you know, any subspecies or anything. So, And then the last day that I fished with him, we we only had one hit the whole day and i caught it and it was a 41 inch northern but i bet it weighed close to 30 pounds it was so fat it was amazing so i was pretty happy with that and then i was going to go to france the next day because i had like another day to or day and a half i could fish in france and then i had to head back to the u.s and so i went over to france and got in there in, in the evening pretty late and so the next day i walked into town to buy a fishing license and that's almost impossible to do in France, I guess. I was on. It was a Monday, and for some reason, the one place in town that sold them wasn't open on Mondays. And so I was all depressed, you know, like, crud, I get all the way over here, and then I can't even go fishing. And then I saw this park, or, you know, like, provincial park or something sign. And so I walked up to their office, and I got to talk to a biologist up there. And he said, well, we can help you get one online. And so they helped me get a license online. And then he took, drove me over to the river to the area. He said that I should try and fish for those because they catch them out of the rivers, the, the Aquitaine pike. They're pretty small. Like a three-footer is a pretty big Aquitaine pike. And so I tried fishing by myself, walking along that river for several hours without any action. And there was a guy fishing there that was using minnows, and he caught quite a few, but I didn't have any minnows or any way to get any. And so... I was getting kind of depressed, and that guy said when I got done fishing to give him a call, and he'd give me a ride back to my whole, my motel or whatever. And so I called him, and I said, man, I haven't had any action. I said, and I'm getting pretty tired. And he goes, well, I got two friends that are going fishing this afternoon. Would you be interested in going with them? Because they said they'd take you if you want. And I said, yeah, I'll go. Because, I mean, they know the river and stuff. And so he drove me into town. I bought something to eat, and then I met his friends, and we went out to some other secret place on the lair river we tried this pond that supposedly had fish in it but it was so shallow i don't know how we could have caught anything i guess the water was low or something and then we went to this other spot on the river which i couldn't even tell you how to get to (laughs) now it was almost like blindfold you in there type deal but we got over there and we were fishing and i hadn't been having any action and finally i got over to this one place and there was these cement posts in the water it must have been like an old dock or something in that area and i cast over there with a one of my favorite spinners that I use for chain pickerel. And darn if I didn't have a strike. And I thought, well, I'm probably going to lose him. And I started getting him in. And his son was fishing a little bit further upstream than me. And he hooked a pike at the same time as I did. And so that guy was having a hard time deciding who should, he should go help. And so he ran over real quick and helped me get my fish in. And then he ran over and got his son's fish. Well, his son's fish was like 36, 37 inch. It was a really big Aquatine pike. Mine was only like 22 inches long, but I was still really happy because I thought, man, I got all of them now. And so we got some pictures, and of course, 
he took pictures with me and his son and his son's holding this big one and i got this little tiny <laughs> one not too impressive looking but at least i can say i caught one and then we fished for a couple more hours and we never had any more action so i couldn't believe it i only caught one southern pike and one aquatane pike but i did catch one each so awesome. ended up with all the species and now there's some like hybrids that i haven't caught like over in lake champlain and on the vermont new york border there's a bunch of chain pickerel northern pike hybrids in there that i want to go try and catch sometime and then over in nebraska at watts lake to have northern pike grass pickerel hybrids in there i'd like to catch one of them too but hmm. i don't really consider them necessarily ne required for the slam because they're pretty rare so you have quote unquote the unofficial slam now yeah i've caught all the species and the, the official subspecies and then the all three of the muskies if they ever decide to turn them back into species again because <laughs> it depends on who's in charge of the scientific people that you know decide species and stuff there's what they call lumpers and there's what they call splitters well for a long time the lumpers were in charge and they were the ones that put like rainbows and cutthroats in the same family as as um at a pacific salmon because they used to consider rainbows and cutthroats in the the salmo family which is what brown trout and and atlantic salmon are and then they decided that the cutthroats and rainbows and goldens were all close enough to pacific salmon that they lumped them in with the pacific salmon well the trout don't spawn and die like the salmon do so i never could understand why they did that and so when they're in there you know they're cutting down on the amount of species and and families and stuff but now the splitters are in there because all of a sudden these two new pike species show up and and i'm sure that they'll probably reclassify some of the salmon is like cutthroats and rainbows and golden might start getting their own you know genus or something i i don't know it, it it changes depending on who's in charge so right now like i said it's the splitters that's why i'm afraid they're probably going to decide there's another kind of pike here one of these days and then i won't have them all <laughs> then i won't have them and yeah. you'll have to go it'll on probably be trip. like in in <clears throat> bulgaria or someplace you know like that where you have to go a long ways to get one it won't be like in canada or something yeah. <laughs> but to put this in perspective for people i mean you had to go multiple places across the yeah US. you have to go to at least four countries yep three continents three continents and lots of miles lots of time or lots of states in the u.s you know mm -hmm. like i caught my redfin pickerel in florida and i caught my chain pickerel and grass pickerel in tennessee and i caught my first muskie in actually in ontario canada mm -hmm. that was a northern muskie and then i caught my first spotted muskie in lake st Clair on the canadian side so that was an ontario fish and then i caught my first clear muskie in kentucky so i mean and then my, I've gone to a lot of states and fished a lot of different places to try and catch all these stupid pike. And it, you have to be really, <laughs> really versatile because you got fish that are a maximum size of a pound all the way up to muskies that can get close to 70 pounds. So, I mean, that's there's a lot of difference between, you know, the, the one foot to the, the six ounce or heavier lures that you throw for muskies right. and the 64th or 32nd ounce lure that you fish for like grass pickerel and redfin pickerel well, it's so. like you and i talked about before with seth when he was doing that that one pickerel for you you know the wood carved one but like you have a fish that's basically like a foot long and then you have a fish that's over four foot long yeah you know? I mean, so there's a, a huge lot of variation in size 
Yeah, exactly. So yeah, I was going to just jump in on this too, because you've also caught a black pike, correct? Uh, I've, I've a caught black a, musky? a black tiger musky, which is just a mutation. Sure. And then I caught a black chain pickerel in Georgia here a few years ago too. So, I mean, I've caught, and I've caught a silver pike because actually Northern pike in North America, there's actually three different paint jobs you can catch. One, <laughs> the typical Northern pike, and then they have a silver pike, which is a pike that doesn't have any markings at all. It's just like silvery blue colored. And you catch them mostly like in certain parts of Canada and then like around the Park Lake or Park Rapids part of Minnesota's got several lakes that have silver pike. And then the other ones kind of, they call it, I guess, a leopard pike. And it's kind of looks a little bit like that southern pike, but they're they're not, they're even less common than the silver ones. Like they catch a few in, or in Iowa and, and Wisconsin, but they're not very common anywhere. So it kind of reminds me of, you know, bears a little bit. And, oh, yeah. You know, I've, I've got a couple bears, and I've got the the browns, the blacks, the, the, Cinnamon. the cinnamons, but I don't have a blonde. And those yeah. are hard to get. I want a big blonde one. Yeah. Right? That's so, where, like, fishermen and hunters really come together when you're, when you're a guy who's, or gal, who's really going after different species, different colors, different variations. There's a lot of crossover between hunting and fishing because, like you said, David, you've got all these different black bear, you know, colorations you want to get. Danny and I have all these fish species we want to get. And it's just so cool because there's so much variation there. And there's more similarity in where I see fishing and hunting as far as conservation. You know, obviously elk hunting, we're going to remove that, that elk from the population. And I think of elk or deer, you know, an elk slam, you've got Thule, you've got Roosevelt, and you've got Rocky, right? And I've got two of the three. I'm waiting on that Thule. But <laughs> Thule's up in Oregon or Washington, uh, isn't California. it? Oh, California. Yeah, California. Roosevelt's in Washington and Oregon. Yeah, and they are big. You know, like we talked about, you yeah, could get... I always thought the Rocky Mountain was the biggest, but I guess it's not even close. No, no. <laughs> yeah. Is the Thule the little one? I can't yep, remember. Yep. Yeah. yeah, but uh, body weight-wise, a, a, a Roosevelt can get into the, you know, 1,200 pounds. Mm. A, a big Rocky, a big Rocky is like 800 so, so they're more moose size almost than, than, <laughs> oh, yeah. than elk size. <laughs> they're big. beefy. They're the bodybuilders of the elk world, I guess. But, you know, when you're out elk hunting, you want to only harvest a mature male, right? We're leaving as many females as you can out there to grow that herd. And why are you taking that mature male out and leaving those juveniles? Because they're going to add to the gene pool, the mature it's done. It's kind of the same thing pike fishing, right? Yeah. Yeah, and that's another thing. We had Pete Mena on, and we talked a little bit about pike and musky fishing with Pete. And, you know, just talking about conservation, you know, fishing, this is where fishing and hunting really kind of change course a little bit just because you can release your fish. You can. Yeah. Like, and I release all my big fish. You, I, I never keep muskies or tigers. Well, and you can tell my kids come from a fishing family because they say, dad, are you going to go catch a, a, an antelope? Are you going to go catch a deer? I'm like, no, there's no catch and release and hunting. If I catch him with a bullet, he's done, you know, kind of thing. But um, that's where it's, it's pretty critical, especially on certain bodies of water that you release fish. Like I think of tiger muskies, especially tiger muskies are a sterile fish. They can't reproduce. reproduce. And so like here in Wyoming, Utah, Idaho, Washington, all these places that they've been planted. If people are catching and keeping a bunch of tiger muskies, you there's nothing to the replace them. The resources stock more. Yeah, exactly. And there's really, really like from a taxpayer perspective, they're really expensive to raise. So if you have people that are harvesting them, 
they're gone. I and mean, are they good to eat? Done. I don't know. I've never I would imagine them, they taste like probably. a pike, I would guess. But I, I've never kept one, I couldn't tell you. Yeah, pike are really good. And you know, I'll keep smaller pike, but I don't like to kill the big pike. And then I don't re- I keep any muskies and I don't keep any tiger muskies just because the main reason they stock tiger muskies out west is to re- reduce like rough fish species. White suckers, carp. Stuff like that. Yeah. So if you remove them... When they get legal, which in Wyoming is 36 inches, that's about the, when they start getting really good at eating the the rough fish. They, you know, get big enough. They, they got a big enough mouth. They yeah, can get they, around a, a couple pound sucker. Oh, yeah. And they're and, very and, good at it. And that's the problem with when you put tiger muskies in an area that never had them before. It's like the biggest fish they've ever caught. So, I mean, like a 30-inch tiger is a monster to them. Well, that's just a baby you know, to a musky fisherman. And when they get to that legal size, and a lot of them before they get to that legal size, people thump them on the head and take them home to either get them mounted or eat them or whatever. So once they get close to legal size, they of most of them get taken out of the population right away, which is a bummer because I way rather catch them when they're over 40 inches than they're only 30 inches or right. whatever. So, so I'm afraid Bass Lake here in about another year or two is going to get a lot of harvest going on because the fish will be getting legal there might even be some legal ones in there now yep and before we get into this next part of the program because i want to talk about pike a little bit more and about eating pike because danny i know that's one of your favorite fish to eat i want to talk about high mountain seasonings so high mountain seasonings is another one of our sponsors and they're a fantastic company family owned been around for 30 years um, and they're based here out of Riverton, Wyoming, where Radcast Outdoors is recorded. So definitely go check out their recipes. I, I was I'm actually in the process of thawing out a ham, a full ham that I'm going to get some video for you guys for on how to make your own ham at home uh, from a pig that we raised this last year. Another thing that they have, and David can attest to this, is if you're a hunter and you harvest deer, elk, moose, bison, anything like that, they have a ton of great stuff, don't they, David? Oh, it's way too easy to just get a shaker and just, I mean, yeah, we've talked about multiple times jerky snack sticks salami doing your own bacon doing your own hams and that it's a little more labor intensive but i wouldn't say it's not something that the home hobbyist can't do at all the instructions are there it's pretty laid out it's pretty simple you need to scale in a kitchen cupboard right mm-hmm. but I, if if you're not at that level you can just get the shakers and some hamburger and on the grill season some hamburgers they got some great products i use a lot of their fish smoking products like their mm-hmm. gourmet fish and their wild trout smoking stuff that's how i smoke all my fish because i smoke a lot of trout in the winter time especially i catch splake and, and tiger trout and stuff like that over at sunshine and then i smoke them and i give away some of them for christmas presents and then i take some to my cancer doctors and nurses and stuff to, as a thank you you know for dealing with me all the time and their stuff is is very good and very very easy to use yeah it's as simple like for the fish brine it's as simple as get a a gallon of cold water dump the packet in and mix it together and put your fish in i mean it's super simple so please go support high mountain seasonings like i said i know all the people down there you know the owners the people that are working in the warehouse they're really great folks so support an american business there we really appreciate it but i want to get back to pike because we do a lot of fish fries around my house and Danny's a part of a lot of those and contributes to a lot of those. And, you know, he'll go catch Northern Pike. I went and caught some, I've got some in the freezer right now. Um, and Northern Pike is a, 
is a delicious fish to eat. So I wanted you to talk a little bit about they, it. And obviously they reproduce, right? Yes, they reproduce. and Sometimes too well. Yes. There's a lot of states that want to get rid of northern pike. But, but Danny, tell us a little bit about, you know, northern pike and how they're different from like a walleye or a crappie as far as their table fare. Well, their meat is a lot firmer, and I like it a lot better. But the worst part about northern pike is they have a lot of Y bones, which is extra row bones that most fish don't have that are Y shaped, and it takes some practice to get them out of them. And I have to, I have to watch the video all the time because I don't do it often <laughs> enough, or else have Pat do it because he seems to have it down pretty good. <laughs> but if you can get the, you don't want to leave the skin on them because that skin is a, that slime on pike is really strong tasting. So take off the skin, and sometimes they got a, a pretty thick bar of, of red flesh underneath the where their lateral line is you might want to cut that out and then if you can get the y bones out it's actually i think it's better than walleye but most people like walleye better but so a little bit of a tangent as far as salmon goes you know when we're doing the salmon species you know if if you're gonna prepare your fish pretty quick talk about that fish slime you can leave the skin on salmon and cook it and it's it's oh yeah that's good. how i usually do on salmon but pike you don't want to do that it'll give you a nasty taste that slime will well there's a, there's that layer of fat on a salmon right yeah. between the skin and the meat and if you're going to freeze that fish for any length of time you know go you're going on a trip to alaska go ahead and skin your fillets out and go ahead and vacuum seal them without that layer of fat and without the skin on there because yeah, they remove the, fat, the slime and the fat spoils. the fat gets rancid on yep. on yep. fish with high oil content golden trout are one of the worst ones if you catch golden trout and try to eat one eat it right away don't <laughs> freeze it and try and eat it because they go bad really fast but if you catch one right out of the lake and, and eat it right there you know by the lake they're one of the best fish there are in wyoming to eat but, but you don't want to freeze them well i got in <laughs> on one of patrick's fish fries and you know we talked about the y bones but man that's you know that's awful close to halibut oh man it's good stuff and you know you talked about the firmness of pike one thing i like about it just from a culinary perspective like when i'm cooking it is that northern pike holds together really well and because it's more of a steak consistency it's not just going to fall apart on you like a like a fillet of walleye will so if you've never tried northern pike fry some up like you would a walleye and just try Try it, and I guarantee you, if you're like me and you like a little bit firmer texture of meat, you're going to love it. Because, I mean, to Danny's point, if if you keep that darker meat in there, though... <laughs> It'll make it taste stronger. You're, you're not going to like it as much, so definitely try to get that out. And part of... I, I learned this last year, and this is from watching different YouTube videos, but bleeding the fish right when you catch them if you're going to prepare them and bleeding them out really well helps reduce the amount of flesh that gets tainted with that red you know kind of darker stuff so definitely bleed them out really good get them on ice get the skin off like danny said they are the slimiest little boogers oh ever. yeah they're oh my gosh slimy and, slime. and and dangerous to try and hold <laughs> yeah they are i um, use a fish gripper when i handle pike most of the time yeah i've got lots of scars on my hands from pike and muskies and pickerel especially pickerel because they're so small you don't really worry about them but they have every bit as sharp a teeth as a northern or a musky so and they're very athletic too. Yeah, yeah they're all muscle pretty much so i was going to ask you about that from because i mean you have a fisheries biology degree what what is it that makes pike muskies pickerel so unique i mean as far as their body makeup and how they operate well they're primarily ambush predators so they're built for like short bursts a real high speed like they say a a pike or a muskie can get up to like 35 miles an hour in like three body lengths or something. So, I mean, they're, they're sprinters. They're not like a salmon or a, or a wiper or something like that where they fight you forever and ever and ever. You, they fight so it's real, a short, intense It's a real fight. intense battle, but it doesn't very last violent. very long. Like maybe a 
half a minute or minute maybe or if you're using too light a line it can last a lot longer it but, can be extremely violent when they oh hit. yeah they tend to like to come out of the well not so much northern pike but muskies and tiger muskies look and pickerel like to jump a lot and so a lot of times you'll hook them in and the first thing you'll see is them come flying out of the water almost like a tarpon so do you want to use steel leaders for those i mean you have teeth? to or okay. your teeth the teeth will bite your line off even little pickerel can bite your line off because their walleyes have sharp teeth but they're like a like a pin kind of they're just they're sharp on the point yeah and a pike's teeth are pointed but they also have like a knife-like blade so they can cut you on the side or on the end so if you get bit by a pike a lot of times you don't feel it at first but they'll slice into you real bad and then it takes forever for it to quit bleeding i don't know if there's something in their saliva or or what but i mean it'll bleed a long time and you won't even know you're cut at first yeah then you look down and your hand just bleeding like a stuck pig one way to think about it is think about a traffic cone that's like a walleye tooth and then think about a sword that's more like, <laughs> that's a, pike. like a pike tooth i mean they're just built very differently and i mean i would much rather get raked by a big walleye than than by a pike oh yeah any, it'll, any just, day. it'll just scratch you a yep. walleye will a pike will just gouge you really deep Cut so fish deep. grippers when when going after these yeah, species yeah i use a boga grip most of the time but you have to use a boga grip the right, right way because if you just grab them and try and lift them up by just the boga grip it'll break their jaw sometimes so you got to use the grip but then support their body too with your other hand when you use a gripper yeah because they'll tear their mouths and you want a real boga grip or something almost exactly like it because a lot of the cheap knockoffs aren't don't swivel whereas a boga grip swivels so if that pike starts rolling on you he can roll freely with the boga grip whereas another kind of gripper he's allowed to break his jaw or something because it it's you know lots of leverage there and torque something i did not know it's great advice and they do a gator roll so like when you get them up close once once they do that to their prey no it's more uh just trying to get away from you mechanism because when you start to get them close to the bank they they get there they they go crazy they go nuts and they'll roll 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 and they'll wrap your line up and if you have a boga grip attached to them and it or a gripper that doesn't swivel like a boga grip it'll just destroy their jaws because they're just so powerful they're just like a tube of muscle yeah kind of like a freshwater barracuda or something i guess would be a good way to i've actually had a, a musky break my rod because he's i had him on my boga grip and he started spinning and he got the line so tight that he snapped the end of my rod off <laughs> jeez so what other species have you fished for that, that are kind of on this list and similar. I mean, you just mentioned saltwater. Any other species that, you know, come to mind? Oh, I've, I've caught almost every species in Wyoming except for the shovel-nosed sturgeon, and then I haven't caught a, a drum in Wyoming. I've caught drum, but I never caught them in Wyoming. I've caught, I don't know, a bunch of species. Caught striped bass, white bass, yellow bass, wipers. You've um, caught pretty much all the bass species, haven't you? Well, they keep adding more <laughs> sunfish bass species <laughs> yeah. yeah the splitters now there's like eight different kinds of bass in like georgia or something when there used to only be florida strain and and northern strain and then some small mouse and some those, um, no the shoal bass shoal bass yeah but now they got i don't know it depends on what drainage there's like swanee bass and i don't know like i said there's eight or nine different what they call species now bass so igfa came out with these royal slam clubs back in the the 80s and they had a bass slam a trout slam a salmon slam for the freshwater people and then they had a bunch of them for different ocean ones well i had the first trout slam and the first bass slam in the u.s but they're 
they kind of threw them together kind of haphazardly because the, the bass lamb included largemouth, smallmouth spots, shoal bass, but it also had like stripers and white bass and wipers and yellow bass and stuff and they're not even the same family that's two different yeah. families and then like on the trout they had like char and trout and pacific salmon that's like saying a, a king salmon and a kokanee are, are similar or need to be in the same well they yeah. are in the same family they're both pacific yeah. salmon yeah. but i mean they included rainbows cutthroats and goldens which are actually now oncorhynchus and and brown trout and atlantic salmon are salmo and mm-hmm. and char or salvalinus and so they had like all three of those together but they didn't have like the salmon slime is completely separate and it's a king and a, a silver and a chum and a sockeye and a pink. pink and then they throw in an atlantic salmon too even though it's in a different family <laughs> well i don't have the uh, salmon slam neither do i I, I don't have the on, atlantic i don't i don't have i only have kings and sockeyes and then if you count kokanee something different even though it's just a landlocked Sockeye. Yeah. Well, that's I have the only a, three I have. A leg up on you. I did live in Alaska, yeah. and they're all there. So <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I went to Alaska one time back in '87. Those king salmon are brutal. I'll give them credit. They're the most brutal fish I've ever caught. They are a strong fish. Is there's video on? We've got it up on one of the older podcasts. I my best king salmon was in the net and out of the net, and I I cried in the bottom of the boat for a little while. <laughs> it was a huge one. Kind of like that one that you have mounted, that, you know. Yeah, I've, I've caught two. I hooked three when I was up there, and I caught two, a 40-pounder a and a 35, which for the keen eye, that's nothing spectacular. But for most of the salmon streams in Alaska, that's pretty good fish. Oh, and, it's and a good fish. For listeners, I think the, the Les Anderson's king there is 98 pounds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it sits in the Ford extremely, dealer there in Soldotna. Yeah. Extremely Les rare. Les Anderson was actually from Thermopolis. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, is my, he kin to some of the other Andersons there then? I don't know. He, my ex-roommate, Ron Gorsas, dad, or grandfather, lived in Thermopolis. His name was Harry Lindy, and he knew Les pretty real well. And, huh. About the time that Les caught that, he was talking about how he, you know, was like his neighbor or something in Thermopolis. But he caught that on the bank, rod and reel, and it was like an hour, hour and a half fight to land that yeah, fish. Yeah, it was a monster. I, I've seen pictures of it, but I never have actually seen the mound. I was in Soldotna, but we didn't stop in the Ford dealer to see it. It may not be there anymore. But I, I'd fish. say of all the fish I caught, that King Sam is the most brutal. And then, but if a sockeye got that big, I think a sockeye'd be stronger than a king because them sockeyes are just. Oh, it, they just greyhound across the water. Pound for pound, the sockeye has the most yeah, power. Yeah, I, I got spooled by the first two I caught because I started out <laughs> with a trout rod and eight pound test. And you know, <laughs> when they get in that main current and the Kenai, you, uh, it's I want to know over. how an eight to twelve pound fish can break twenty pound test. That's, yeah, oh, that's man. somebody that doesn't know how to use their drag. Yeah. Probably. <laughs> well, I got up to ten before I started landing them. Oh, yeah. I broke. Or, I mean, few, up to twelve, I guess, before I started landing. I, I broke them. a couple of fish off for two reasons. I think one was. It was about to get into everybody else. And the second reason was when you're flipping in the river, you tend to nick your line on the, on rocks, the rocks and stuff. Yeah. stuff. And I mean, those those are the times when you, you break But they the make off. such long runs. Oh, you can't. Man. I mean, they'll run like, it's like 300 hooking, yards, you it's know, like hooking sometimes. a freight train, man. Yeah. My favorite is silvers, though. They You usually, you Acrobats. always get them out of the water once and yeah. sometimes That's what I hear. twice. That's what I hear. I've seen kings come out of the water, and I've sockeyes come out of the water a bunch of times, but they don't really come straight up. They just kind of just yeah, like a dolphin just, or something yep. shooting along the surface. 
Yeah, exactly. Well, and Danny, you've done a lot of different things. Like I know you don't go around tooting your own horn, but you've you've held some records too. I mean, you know, you had yeah, class world records. I was in a record chasing phase there for a while back in the eighties, where I, I had like forty five or so world line class world records, either in the Freshwater Fishing Hall of Fame or or the IGFA. But I kind of gave that up here. I don't know, ten, twelve years ago, but had a lot of records for golden trout which is used to be one of my specialties a long time that's, ago that's so a what, whole nother podcast we're gonna do on goldens what would be your advice for somebody that wanted to chase a, a record of, of any a kind slam or something like yeah. that uh, if, you, if you're going for records you need to get either a freshwater fishing hall of fame record book or an igfa record book which you can get by contacting them and send them a certain amount of money or if you join you get a free record book and then you'd look it over and you see what what species you know are available to you nearby and then you see what the records are for the different line classes like i said i had a lot of golden trout records and then i had a fair amount of mountain whitefish records too because they keep records on pretty much every kind of fish so you look for fish that aren't real popular like well mountain whitefish you know most people just consider them a nuisance Mm -hmm. and some of the like lower line classes like two and four pound test you know it only takes pretty small fish you know like a pound or i don't know what the records are anymore and so you load all your reels with you know line in those classes that you think you can catch fish big enough to break and you just keep fishing until you get them yeah and i remember when you caught some of those bigger fish because when i was a little kid i always looked forward to coming to riverton to see my grandparents but also to come see danny because he was always catching really cool fish and i remember one time going over there and you had this massive golden trout that you had caught yeah getting to see that as a little how, kid. how big a golden trout are we talking oh uh, my biggest one's 21 and a quarter length yeah, it's like i've caught one that was 311 my heaviest but i had one on i lost one time that was a little over four i think and the absolute biggest one i've ever seen was probably not quite five pounds but i didn't catch him because i used to fish him real hard in the summer above lander for a few years there and i got where i could catch them fairly good and i i could tell you know their size pretty good because i caught enough of them but that that is one fish that is on my list to catch is go cool get a golden fish. i want to get a big golden yeah a male golden in his spawning colors is one of the prettier fish it's about like a male brookie as far as how pretty they are yeah and they're really annoying to catch because you'll see them a lot of the time and they'll come charging up to your fly or your lure like they're going to hit it and then they'll stop right in front of it and they'll open and close their mouth while they're looking at it <laughs> Then they'll just turn around and swim off. <laughs> so they go through the motions. They yeah. just don't. <laughs> a lot of times. Now, if you get yeah. two or three of them, they get competitive. Then one of them will charge in and grab it to keep his buddies from getting it. But if you get one, they're awful hard to catch a lot of the time. That was, that was why I started fishing them was because they were pretty challenging to catch like muskies. When I couldn't go musky fishing, I'd go chase golden. But you got to be in pretty good shape because almost all the golden trout lakes, you know, are. 10,000 feet or higher. Now, they're from California, right? Yeah, originally. And they were all um, stocked by horseback up in the winds? Well, originally. Originally. Now they stock them with helicopters Helicopters. and airplanes. But back in the old days, they took Mike Melt cans full of them on, on mules or something and brought them in. But now, you know, they use planes and so are they doing pretty good in the lakes as far i mean i think they're starting to come back they had a real bad freeze above land or where the snow got deep enough that a lot of them lakes winter killed back in 98 99 that winter i was working in lander and we had a 48 inch snow one week and then about a week and a half later we had a 52 inch snow over there and of course it was a lot deeper in the mountains and i went in that next spring as soon as or you know early summer as soon as i could get in there and I didn't see a golden trout one in my normal 
lakes and in the spring times when you see them usually you know they're up running the shoreline looking for places to spawn and stuff so when you didn't see any that wasn't a good sign but then they and then for a long time they didn't have any to stock because they they used to have a broodstock lake over by pinedale called surprise lake and they had a forest fire over there and because of that forest fire the lake water got too warm and the golden started dying out and so they lost their their brood stock so then they had to make a deal with california to get some more golden trout and for a long time there california had a moratorium where they wouldn't wouldn't let any goldens leave the state because i think they were mad because the the ones they sent to wyoming you know end up getting a lot bigger than they get in california <laughs> and they did oh yeah all the biggest goldens are from wyoming i mean the world record's like well i've got i've got a new deal for them we'll trade uh some grizzly bears for some more golden <laughs> trout yeah. deal we'll yeah. give them some wolves for a bonus yeah. <laughs> i don't think they'd be too keen on it but that sounds like a good idea to me. well maybe yeah. they should take the grizzly bear off their state flag yeah. if they don't have any grizzly bears yeah. but anyway i i really got into the golden trout thing and then a few years ago, Wyoming started this ultimate angler deal, and I, oh, yeah. I, I fished so many times, and you know, fished all over the state, and so I know, you know, where to catch big whatever certain times a year, and so I had an advantage over a lot of people when it when it started because I I knew you know where to go to catch a lot of these, and then also we're really lucky here in Fremont County because we have some of the most diverse fisheries in the whole state because we got the excellent bass fishing, excellent walleye fishing trout excellent trout fishing you know and burbot and all sorts of stuff whereas most a lot of the state you know it's just like trout only or or warm water species only we have Mm -hmm. a lot more variety like in boyson you can get most so you you can can get get burbot sauger walleye perch crappie rainbows brown browns like seven species just out of boyson if you're if you're good at you know or lucky or whatever then you go up like in the winter mountains and you can get your gold and then your grayling and yep. and then white some of them fish. lakes have yeah white fish and then some of them lakes up there have splake splake's pretty hard to get like above land or i the best place to get big splake is over like at sunshine over by matizzi yep brooks mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, Brooks has them, but I mean, it takes a 20-inch Blake. That's pretty unusual for yeah. 20-inch Blake out of Brooks. And for our listeners, Danny was the first one in Wyoming, even in spite of his cancer, to do the ultimate angler. So to get the ultimate angler, you have to catch 10 different master, species. Yeah, 10 different species of master angler-sized fish. So it's I'm at eight right now, and it's it's challenging. I mean, oh, you, yeah. you, you got to put in a lot of time, and you, and then, you have to know what you're doing. And you have to fish for fish that you maybe don't fish very much or never fish yeah. like i still haven't figured out how to get my sturgeon yet we're gonna figure that one out yeah and then <laughs> but i mean like oh did i said sauger because i yep. mean yep. fremont county is one of the best places to catch a master angler sauger. And to get a master angler sauger it has to it's be pretty 23 different. inches that's, that's pretty difficult big sauger just so you know guys that's yeah. a big sauger some of them are pretty easy like the rainbow trout is probably the easiest Super one easy. to get 20, 20 inches. inches i mean yeah. you can get them out of boyson or below the dam pretty you regular can catch 10 to 12 out of boyson in one day if you put hit put it right into it yeah and then like largemouth bass is pretty easy in fremont county because yeah. camille weight's got lots of it's 16 inches on largemouth there's a lot of 16 inch and bigger bass in camille weight there's bass that big like in the ponds down there at rendezvous site and places like that too can't get the smallmouth here though. no That's we don't have smallmouth in our county That's the bummer and we don't have northern pike in our county. <laughs> well not officially yeah. yeah we had northern northern pike for a little while because they stocked some accidentally in ocean lake probably 10 years ago 
but I think they're all gone now. Yeah. You know, Danny, Danny and I talk about this a lot is that if you want to get kids and people interested in fishing, the master angler program is a really good way to do that because it gives you a challenge and it gives you something to shoot for. Yeah. And you're, you're allowed to keep or release the fish. You just have to have a good picture of it. So if people are wanting to eat walleye or whatever, and they catch a 23 inch walleye, because I think walleye is only 23. Yeah. 23. Yep. It's, that's fairly doable in ocean lake or voice and arm even the wind river sometimes and i know most people that kills them to turn a walleye loose well after you catch him you don't have to turn him loose if you don't want to i turn most of mine back because i i don't like to keep big fish any species very well because you're messing up the gene pool somewhat so for master angler you just need a photo with a length yeah and then you can release that fish yeah if you want to or you can keep it it doesn't matter you just have to have a good good picture with it with some kind of a measuring device and i think they like it better and if you have a picture you holding it too but it's not required you just have to have a picture. yeah and i think there's only like six to ten mass or ultimate anglers so far in wyoming that have completed you know the 10 i'm working on my second 10 and i've been trying to catch different species than i turned in for my first 10 and I, i'm like too short now, there's so. 24 total so i mean a guy you know depending on where you live in wyoming you have a lot of different opportunities at it because it's 24 species so lots of variety yeah like keyhole has a if you went up to keyhole you could get quite a few of them they have drum in there they have smallmouth smallmouth crappies northern pike um perch walleyes walleyes i mean there's six right there well, they have the so they have the North American Grand Slam as well, similar in the hunting realm, right? And it's twenty nine of the big yeah. name species. And well, this is just a, a state thing. Oh yeah, uh, they don't really have a national thing, but I'm sure they probably will someday. And it's something just give you a little more motivation to go try fishing other places, I guess, and other species too. Yeah, like guys that specialize in walleyes, if they decide they want to try and get a ultimate angler you know it forced them to fish for something besides walleye and like a tiger muskie or a pike or something like that yeah and some of the species are really hard to get like i don't think anybody's turned in a shovel nose sturgeon yet and there's only been two or three sauger i think and then which i have one of them (laughs) and there's only been i think one tiger muskie that i know of and i it's happened to be me i fish for them a lot so i kind of know what i'm doing but Wyoming's tiger muskie population is really low because for about six or eight years, we couldn't get tiger muskies to sock. So they're just starting to get the program going good again. And I think you could probably get a master angler out of out of Bass Lake or Badwater Pond probably either this year or next year. But most of the best tiger muskie fishing where you have a chance of getting, you know, like a 40-inch or bigger be Healy or LAK, and they're more up on the northeastern part of the state. So, you know, as far as just tips tackle when you're going out for a specific species are you going to take a whole bunch of lures or are you going to take just a few lures and, a, and one rod and reel combo and i mean what's your plan of attack and what's the reason for well it? if i'm fishing for just around here i generally just use uh, my medium light spinning rod with with six pound test on it and then if i'm after walleyes or trout you can use similar lures like i like suspending crankbaits mostly for them and but if I'm going bass fishing, I go heavier line because bass like to bury into the reeds and stuff as soon as you hook them. So you have to have heavier line to pull them out. So I'll go up to like 10 or 12 pound 
mono or I like to use about 20 pound braid mostly. Now, is there a difference in grade of mono between brands or is pretty much any brand mono similar to another brand? Well, any of the big name brands are, are decent. My favorite is Strand, but a lot of people like Berkeley. But when I used to fish for records, Berkeley line didn't always break where it was supposed to. So I used Strand most of the time because it seemed to break more consistent. But but like Strand and and Berkeley and Maxima, there's like four or five brands that they're all they're all decent quality. I wouldn't buy the little 300 or 600 yard spools for $1.69 Shakespeare yeah, line. That. that stuff's not usually too dependable. Well, there's two reasons for that. One, you talked about the breaking points is, you know, break weight. Inconsistent. But, but also, yeah, I've noticed with that really cheap line, it, it messes up on the spool if you're using a spinning rod a lot Yeah, more. it tends to tangle it a lot faster. really bad, yeah. Whereas the better quality lines don't do that as bad. Yeah, see, Danny, he, he he's a strand guy. I'm a Berkeley guy. I think Berkeley's gotten pretty good over the last few years. But I mean, they both work really well. I've used both of them, and they're 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 high quality. I mean, they'll they'll do the job. So when you're going for these trophy fish, is there a specific knot that's your go-to knot, or I mean, does any fishing knot work? Well, when I'm using smaller stuff like I do around here, I usually just use a improved improved clinch to attach my lures to my line. But if I'm going after muskies or pike or something like that i usually use like a palomar knot to hold my leader to my line because a lot of times you're using braided line when you're fishing for them and and improved clinch will slip because yep. braid's so slick but a palomar will hold so that's that's the two knots i use i don't i don't you know like knot two different lines together with with nail knots or all that very often uni knots and stuff yeah it's i usually have to look at the direction to even tie them because i don't tie them enough to <laughs> But I can tie a Palomar knot or improve clinch in my sleep because I do it so many times. So pretty much, you know, worldwide, you can kind of kind of take a few lures and you can go hunt some water down and catch a fish, right? It, well, if I have a little bit of idea what I'm fishing for, yeah. So when like I, when you're in a foreign country, is it really, is the technique and style a whole lot different or is it, are there some pretty big similarities? I I thought it was, you know, there was a lot more similarities and differences, but they do have regional lures they like better over, like in Russia, like I said, they, they couldn't figure out why I wanted to fish for pike in the first place because they don't really consider them that important. They're big on timing and linox and, and a lot of those big minnow species and stuff. They, pike are too much work, I guess, because they y bones and stuff so but they're big on like spoons and spinners which is what a lot of northern pike fishermen use all the time here i just am a top top water addict because i've had there's so much more fun to catch fish on top and i thought those pike would probably hit top water pretty good and they do there's like fishing river muskies but with a little bit smaller top water and I got addicted to, you know, dry fly, fly fishing. I, I fly fish, I spinner fish, I bait fish, what, whatever, right? I archery hunt and I rifle hunt. But there's something about when you lay a nice, if there's a hatch going on that the trout are feeding on and you lay that fly out there and a fish erupts out of the water, you yeah. know that it's coming. <laughs> or in Danny's case, and he got me hooked on this, when you throw a rumbler or a uh, whopper, whopper plopper and you see this huge <laughs> wake, wake coming, coming up behind, behind it, it. <laughs> or else it'll fluor just shoot straight up in the air because the fish comes straight up underneath that it or something. It's exciting. Awesome. <laughs> or seeing that shadow even, like, you know, when you can see the fish kind of come up 
off the bottom and start to follow your lure, it's like, oh crap, here it comes. It's it's about to happen. It's about to get real. Yeah, boom. it's real real hard if you haven't fished top water too much to set the hook way too soon because you hear that splash and you want to just set the hook instantly. Well, you got to actually wait until you feel the weight of the fish before you set the hook because a lot of times they don't really have it in their mouth when that first explosion happens. Yeah, that explosion mouth's wide open and you pull it like I did over at LAK and you pull it right out of their mouth. That's brutal. Well, It'll make you cry. Patrick and I went to a lake and we were brook trout fishing and I got to catch a flu. I, ha- I had to go to, to wet flies instead of dry flies, but I got to sight cast because they were where we were fishing. You could see them and it was pretty cool to... There was a couple times I pulled yeah, the lure and, out of their mouth. And Danny caught one a couple of years ago. Wasn't it a couple of years ago? You caught like a 24-inch brook. Yeah, which it was is a, a 24. giant brook trout. And caught it on an X-Wrap. And the thing about, I don't know, the thing about Danny is, you know, for I, I've gotten to fish with Danny a lot. He's He's very good at finding different species, like probably one of the better unsung, you know, multi-species anglers out there. He's been able to catch a lot of different things. He's had lots of different records, and it's it's just always fun to fish with him because I always learn something new. And one of the things that I think I've learned about Danny that is kind of unique, but it, it's a good thing to remember, is when you have confidence in a lure and you have confidence in how you work the lure and you're good at it, that's usually a good thing to stick with. Like, you you don't have to be fancy. You just have to be good at, at your craft, whatever that is. Yeah, I don't. I don't change lures a lot during the trip. Sometimes musky fishing, if I can't get anything to go, I'll change. But usually when I go musky fishing, I'm in my wader, so I only can carry like four or five lures with me at a time. Or as you watch the TV shows, you know, then the guys in the boats, they got like 100 lures hanging in the side of their boat or these great big huge tackle boxes full of lures. And I found that if you get four or five different kinds of lures that you have confidence in, that usually works just as good. But that's just my opinion. Well, you know, and not not that I'm comparing too much similarity, but growing up doing steelhead out of a drift boat, we did a lot of plugging, and there was a couple plugs in that boat that were just tuned right and just had the right rattle in them that they would outperform other lures. You know, you, you'd buy hot shot plugs, right? you buy them at the store, K-15s or whatever we were using, and you'd get a certain silver one, and it we had fished it so much that the silver had completely gone, and it's almost <laughs> opaque now. Yeah. But it was tuned, and it rattled just right yeah. that you could put another lure, the same package, open it up on the rod next to it, and I nine out of ten times it was that other lure that was going to yeah, smack that, a fish. That's like a lot of musky lures that the one wooden ones especially. Like you might get one out of five that actually runs the way it needs to, to where it really catches fish and maybe one or two of the other ones, you might be able to get tuned to where they work good, but you'll usually have a couple dogs that you just can't catch anything on. And when you're spending 20 to 50 bucks on a lure, that's kind of painful. Yeah. Muscular. I know when, when I used to fish in Minnesota a lot, the guides would go into the musky shops and they'd buy a bunch of lures and test out and they'd keep the ones that work good and the other ones they'd bring return you know and <laughs> i don't know if the shops knew what was going on or not but they made sure they got the ones that worked right like suix and stuff like that suix a wooden jerk bait and it's got a dive and rise action it's one of the most popular musky lures there is and like only like two out of ten would work right or whatever you know and maybe a couple others you could get tuned to work right well i know when you're first starting out with any new lure any new fish species you know take just dry fly fishing for example you know once you once you find that fly that those fish will accept it's really easy to go back to the storm okay i need 10 more of this mosquito pattern this size but 
when you're first out there, first hitting that water, you know, it's it's tough to figure out what is this fish actually going to accept as its food, and am I wasting my, you know, woolly bugger is a good good all around anywhere you go if you throw a woolly bugger out it's You'll a catch it, something you, you could eventually catch something but mm-hmm. the same day the same spot if you go from that woolly bugger to a mosquito pattern or a midge or a gnat or a, a bead-headed nymph or whatever it might be you might catch 10x fish yeah. it sounds like with pike it's more just hitting the water and getting the presentation right in the right spot yeah well, that's how it is with most fish like whenever rapala comes out with a new suspending jerk i buy one to try it and some of them I bought I really liked, and some of them I didn't like that well. And then after you find one you like, you still have to work with it to figure out what the right twitching and stuff is to do to make it work. The right cadence. And then I also I tend to like modify mine because a lot of them either sink too fast or rise too fast, and so I, I mess with the weighting on them and stuff. So a lot of mine don't look even stock because I've messed around with them a lot, but they do exactly what I want them to do. And then it just kills me when I lose one because <laughs> I spent all this time getting it just right, and then I get a fouled hooked or on a rock or break off a big carp or something accidentally on it. It just kills me. Yeah, it's no fun losing that favorite lure. I've, I've had a few of those, and Danny's seen me about losing my mind when I A lot of them. times I'll try and go wading after them. Mm. Like the other night I... I ran out of a, a certain kind of a rapa that I really like, and I had some deep diving ones, but they dive too deep for where I was fishing. So I cut the bills back on, on one, and then I weighed it to where it, it rose really slow, and I got it where it was working really good, and I'd caught several fish on it, including that's what I caught. No, I didn't catch that huge brown on it, I guess, but I'd caught some fish on it, and so I really was liking it. Well, I got hung up below the dam at Boyson. I don't know, it's probably been a week and a half ago at night. It was like 8 o'clock at night, you know, pitch dark out. And here I am putting my waders on, wading out in the river, trying to get that stupid <laughs> lure loose. And it was cold, the wind was blowing. And those rocks down there oh, on either side of the... Heck, I got so much algae on them. It was, I managed to get in and out without falling, but I came pretty close. So I, I had my net I was using kind of like as a tripod to help hold me up. <laughs> and then I'm sitting here, you know, trying to get that thing loose, holding a flashlight in my mouth and stuff. <laughs> I finally got it loose, but most people would just broke it off and said, well, we'll have to get some, another one. But yeah. I'd spent so much time trying to get that thing just right i really didn't want to lose it no there's been a couple times we've had that favorite plug steelhead fishing hang up and i've rode quite a ways back upstream to get to get that lure back you know you you dang near break your rod because your rod folds under the drift boat and you're being pushed downstream so yeah i when i was a little when i was in high school i didn't have a whole lot of money and i really liked panther martin spinners well they were like two something a piece and back then that was you know pretty expensive so if i got hung up with the panther martin i'd go wading out to get it well one time i was fishing by the waipo bridge so there's pretty good brown trout fishing there and there's this little island and had a tree in it and of course i managed to get my lure hung up in that tree somehow and so i waded out to the island i started to climb that tree and i got up there went to reach out to grab that branch that had the panther martin on it snapped and i fell into the water my friend was over on the bank just laughing his butt off he goes well was it worth and i said yeah i got my lure back (laughs) but it was like a two dollar and 29 cent panther martin or whatever but hey but you got it back yeah but i I sure got wet and i felt somebody would have had a video camera this was back before video cameras were really any even around 
They could have probably made some money on that America's Funniest Home Video watching <laughs> some kid do, do all that back. stupid stuff just to get a $2.29 Panther Martin back or something. That's worth it, though. It's oh, totally yeah. worth it. Well, it's been awesome having you on to talk about this. I think we're going to have to have you back on to talk about Goldens, especially because I know there's a lot of guys out there that are big golden trout chasers. And so it'd be kind of fun for them to hear a little bit about some of your insights since you've been there and done that. But again, I just want to say thanks for coming on and thanks for all you've taught me about fishing. Cause you, you've well, I don't me know if I taught you anything or not. Oh, you've taught me a bunch. So Danny, it really was a pleasure to be on this side and I'm glad you came on. Yeah. It was fun to hear about Russia and yeah. France and Italy and all these other places. Oh, so. Getting back to that real quick. Italian people are one of the, some of the friendliest people in the world. And French people are some of the most unfriendly people in the world. <laughs> I met some nice people in the small towns in France, but like in the cities, they're just, they don't like Americans and they actually, they don't like anybody. I don't think. And how about Russia? Russia, the people are real cold at first, but like you're not even supposed to smile at people you don't know out there that, that's offensive to them. They think you're trying to pull something on or whatever. But after they get to know you, they're they're some of the nicest people I met. I mean, I made several friends over there, but it's definitely a police state over there too. It was it was kind of scary. And I gotta say, I've never seen Russians eat so much fish in my life. He had the the his guide brought his bride to Wyoming after Danny had gone out there. Yeah, they came over here, and uh, I did a big fish wildlife fry. Fry for and, him. I think that guy's wife had three or four plates. plates full. Oh, yeah, she loved that. <laughs> she wallet. loved that. I don't know wallet. if she hadn't ate the whole time she was out here or if she just really <laughs> liked fish. But, <laughs> but man, he, he, he told me later on Holy that she God. that was the high point of her trip over here was That's having awesome. that walleye. With well, Pat Patrick's Cooper. walleye <laughs> oh, yeah, is, is pretty dang good. He takes it serious. Oh, yeah, man. We had so much fun with him, but it was really cool to meet him. And So, yeah, thanks for sharing the story, Danny. It's 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 been awesome. So, again, guys, if you want to hear more, Ragcast Outdoors, go to ragcastoutdoors.com and definitely go give us a rating on your favorite podcast streaming service. Thanks again, everybody. See ya. See ya.